0: Turn with you, me, if you would, in your copy of the Scriptures to Mark chapter 10, and we we'll be looking at verses 17 to 22, a Scripture passage that is also mirrored in the other Gospels of Luke and uh, Matthew, Mark with his own account of the rich young ruler. Here now, God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word from Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 22. You know, I'm going to start a little bit earlier with Jesus' account of the children in verse 13. So I'm going to start in verse 13 just for some context. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them for to such belongs the children of the kingdom of god truly i say to you whoever does not receive the kingdom of god like a child shall not enter it and he took them in his arms and blessed them laying his hands on them and as he was setting out on his journey a man ran up and knelt before him and asked good teacher what must i do to inherit eternal life and jesus said to him Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him, and said to him, You lack one thing, go, Sell all you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Before we look at the word further, let's pray. Our God, we come to you because there is nothing in our hands that we can do, nothing in our hearts that we bring before you. We ask for your spirit to wake us up. To enable us to hear and see your word that your spirit would change us for we ask in jesus name amen well little children need parents to provide everything that they have the roof over their heads the food on the table and it's that analogy that jesus has just made In this portion of Scripture just before the rich young ruler, whoever does not come to me like a little child cannot enter the kingdom of heaven, empty-handed, fully depending upon me for everything. And then it's as if there is a contrasting illustration in real life that happens right after that account. Jesus says, you have to come to me like a little child, And then the next account that happens is the rich young ruler coming before him, in contrast, basically saying, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And as Jesus begins to answer the question, he answers the question of the rich young ruler, we begin to see him strip away the layers of self-sufficiency that the ruler has. And in seeing him strip away the layers of self-sufficiency that this rich young man had, we see him strip away our own layers of self-sufficiency. And what we end up seeing through this passage is this, that you are unable to earn eternal life, but Christ is able. And so that's what I want you to see and implications that are drawn from it, that you are unable to earn eternal life, but Christ is able is able. And we'll see this as Jesus first corrects this young man's definition of good. Next, as he challenges his keeping of the commandments. And then lastly, as he exposes the idol of the man's heart. And so first, we see him correct the young man's definition of good. He, he runs up to Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus identifies, you've got a cheap definition of good because you presume that you are able to do some good in order to earn or inherit eternal life. And so the first thing Jesus says in response is, why do you call me good? Why are you calling me good? because it seems like you've got the wrong definer of good. No one is good except God alone. And so in this, Jesus is reminding us that no one is good except God. Jesus remembers Genesis 6 that the thoughts and intents of man's heart were only evil continually, pre-flood and post-flood. Jesus remembers the Psalms that Paul quotes in Romans 3 when he strings them together and says, no one is righteous, no, not even one, no one does good. And doesn't this run in direct contrast to the normal thought process of our day in our society? I was trolling around on Facebook. Well, I don't troll too hard, I mostly scroll. Uh, And so at some point in, in recent history, Someone shared a video that was there, and it was the Dalai Lama, who is a a Eastern theologian, we'll say, of, of some significance. And he's got a group of children around him. And the essence of what he said was, as long as you do good in this life, you can expect a happy life in the next life. That's the essence of what, the, of what most of the world believes, that there is good that you're capable of. And as long as you do it, whatever the next life is, it'll be a happy life. But doesn't Jesus contrast that here when he says, put on the brakes, no one is good except God alone. And so that's one thing that we see is that there is no one who's good. The other thing that we see, Jesus is implying If I'm truly a good teacher, you need to submit to me as the God-man, sent from God, the one who is truly good. And so the other thing we see is that Jesus can't simply be a good teacher and not be authoritatively the Son of God. And that's another common thing that we see in our society, don't we? Yeah, Jesus had some great things to say. He was a good teacher. Oh, but, but is he the only way to heaven? Do, I mean, is he really God? Well, I'm not really sure. I like what he said about, you know, turning the other cheek and, you know, doing unto others, you know, what you would have them do to you. Those things sound good, but repent and believe lest you likewise perish? Uh, that one's hard, harder for me to swallow. You don't get to identify Jesus as good teacher and have a buffet and, and leave the rest of what he said. Jesus is a good teacher truly because he is the good Son of God who is co-equal with the Father. And so it reminds us again that we aren't good in and of ourselves, but also you might say, well, preacher, I know that I, I lack good in and of myself. I've clung to Christ for salvation. But remember, What Jesus said, unless you abide in me, you can't bear fruit. That even now, the fruit that you bear, and I will use the term good, the good fruit that you bear is sourced in God. What happens whenever you take a limb and snap it off of a tree? It can't bear fruit, right? That the limb in and of itself is not going to sprout apples. It has to be connected to the tree, communing with it, as it were, in order to bear fruit. That's why Paul says in Philippians, it is God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure, that there is a spirit at work inside you to produce good fruit. And so when you see good fruit born in your life, children, whenever you obey your parents, parents, whenever you're actually patient with your children, whenever you teach them, whenever you're patient with somebody at work, whenever you share the gospel, whenever you defend your faith, that is God in you, his source working in you to will and to work for him. Praise him for that, that your goodness is sourced in God because if it had to be sourced in you, it wouldn't be produced, right? Well, Jesus, after he corrects the ruler's definition of good, he transitions and he challenges the keeping of the commandments by the man. He answers, as Proverbs 26 says, He answers the fool according to his folly. Okay, you you presume that you know you can do something to inherit eternal life. Well, here's what it takes to earn eternal life. I'm going to answer you according to your false assumption. Keep the commands. What does Jesus say? Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Jesus just gives a snippet of the second table, the the last half of the commandments, and you could say Jesus is arguing from the part to the whole, look, here's a sampling of the commandments, not even in the same order in which the commands are given in the Old Testament, but here's a snippet of the commandments. You know the commands, simply keep them all. That's what it takes to earn eternal life. And what Jesus is meaning by this assertion is that you must keep the whole table of the law and not just externally, but internally. Notice an application of one of the commands, do not defraud. That's not in the 10 Commandments. That's an application of multiple aspects of some commandments, probably do not steal as well as do not covet, do not defraud. Earlier in the gospels, Jesus reminds his hearers, you know, you've heard it said, you know, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, if you've looked at someone with lust in your heart, you have committed adultery. You've heard it said, don't murder. But I tell you, if you have been angry with your brother, you've committed murder in your heart. And so Jesus is talking about perfect obedience to the entire moral law and all of the applications that flow from it. Well, how does the ruler respond? How does the young man respond? Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. This reminds me of, you know, times whenever I would ask my mom, "Mom, can I go play? Can I go out and play with so and so?" "Yes, you can, but first you got to clean your room." That room was never so clean so fast. But what do you know about teenagers? What what happens when you open that door and you look in the room? There's clothes shoved in the closet, underneath the bed, nothing's organized in the drawers because I've changed the definition of what a clean room is. Uh, oh, we were in South Carolina and there was a high school next to us that was having a car wash. And so Precious, uh, my wife takes the car through the, the car wash they're doing to raise money for something at the high school. Sorry, Maldon High School, I gotta ouch you here. So she takes the car through the car wash. Okay, ma'am, your car's clean. Well, it was almost dirt. It was like they just moved dirt around on it instead of actually cleaning it. And what they did was simply change the definition of what it means for the car to be clean. And that's what we do. And that's what the young ruler is doing when we allege that we've kept the law. What we've done is simply change the definition of what it means to keep it. Another pastor in South Carolina, his name is Marty Barton. He said, Alleging that we keep the commands is really law reduction. It's lowering the standard to make it seem like it's low enough that you've kept it and you can step over top of that wall. But again, when you look at the full application of the law and the things Jesus says about keeping it from the heart, we realize, yeah, sure, maybe I've never actually killed somebody physically, but have you really never been unrighteously angry? and not only the things that it takes to break the law, but also failing to do all the things it takes to keep the law. I mean, sure, maybe, you've never, maybe you could say that you've never actually stolen something, but have you done the opposite in being always completely unselfishly generous with your goods, always seeking the prosperity of somebody else above, your, above yourself? That's the application of the opposite end of you shall not steal. And that's what Jesus is saying here. This is what it takes to earn eternal life. And the man says, well, I've kept it. I cleaned my room. The car is clean. I've done it, good teacher. Well, Jesus, looking at him, this I want you to notice, though this account appears in the other gospels, This is peculiar to Mark. In verse 21, Jesus, looking at him, loved him. That clause, that phrase, loved him, is peculiar to Mark's gospel because Mark has a special interest, emphasis, if you will, in showing the compassion and love of Christ for the lost. Jesus sees the warped worldview that this man has. He sees the presumption. He sees that he's been taught by leaders who think that they can keep the law. They've taught their subordinates to do the same thing. And he looks at him and he has this pity type of love. When you look at the world and you see the heinousness that's out there, when you see the ridiculous theology do you look at it and does your heart stir with actual love? Or is it simply, they're so wicked, they're so evil, how could they? Now, that's a valid, That's actually a valid aspect of the response. We're called to hate what God hates. Even David says, I hate them with a perfect hatred. But there are two sides of the coin in our response to the world. To one say, yes, that is wicked. But but for the grace of God, that is me, and I have love and pity upon them. It's like looking at someone who has been taught that the correct way to walk is backwards. Could you imagine witnessing someone who's been taught that the correct way to actually traverse the world is to go backwards like this, and they rarely walk forwards? You would say, how, how pitiable is that? My heart goes out. To tell them that they're wrong, that they've been taught wrong. And that's what Jesus does here. Even though he knows that the man will turn away, it doesn't change the fact of what we should say and the heart we should have for others. And so Jesus does. He looks at him, loves him, and he points out the man's sin. How does he do that? Well, he gives him a special command. Okay, you've You've kept the whole law, have you? Well, I have just one more thing for you to do. You lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now, Jesus is not saying, oh, well, you've kept it all great, good job. Now you just have one more box to check. And as long as you check this last box, you will have totally and completely kept the whole law and you will have successfully earned heaven. Jesus knows that the man has not and he uses a special injunction, a special command to expose it. He knows the man's idol. And so he asks him to give up his idol. And then the man is revealed disheartened by the saying, he goes away, for he had great possessions. You know, what, what he should have said, or we should have recognized, perhaps he recognized it, but didn't want to give it up, is the fact that, wow, not only have I not kept the whole second table of the law, I haven't kept the first table. My wealth is my God. Jesus it's argued, perhaps Jesus withheld talk, saying anything about the first table of the law. You shall have no other gods before me because he knew he was gonna get to this special command to reveal you have a God before me and you need to give it up to come follow me. Similar to what Jesus does with the woman at the well. You know, the woman at the well, he says, go get your husband. She says, well, I don't have a husband right, you've had five husbands, and the one you're with now isn't your husband. He uses a special command to expose the idol of the heart, and the man surrenders to the idol. He keeps his possessions, at least for this account, he keeps his possessions and loses Christ. Now, as you relate this to the context, you see Jesus says directly after how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God because there is an exterior self-sufficiency about material wealth, creature comforts that mask our spiritual insufficiency. And so the thing for us, one thing for us to take away from this is to not let our material blessings mask our spiritual need and insufficiency. God warns of this very thing in the scriptures all the way back after he brought the people out of egypt from deuteronomy 8 take care be careful people of god be careful lest you forget that the lord lest you forget the lord your god when you have eaten when you are full and have built good houses and live in them and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied And all that you have is multiplied. Be careful, then your hearts be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And so this injunction, this command to this man is a call for us to examine ourselves. You might be somebody who needs to relinquish an idol for the first time to follow Christ that you have something that you've been holding on to, a lust of this world, whatever that might look like, to give that up and to follow Christ. But now you might also be, as as suspect, excuse me, suspect many of you are in here, well, I have given it all up to follow Christ. I've I've relinquished relinquished every idol and clung to Christ alone for my salvation. Well, I wanna challenge you with this, what, idols of yours have been, or are being, remanufactured." It was Calvin, I'm pretty sure, that called our hearts idol factories. And I took a spin on that and I thought, well, you know, we've we've given up our idols, I've followed Christ. But you know what happens, you know, just like that broken TV or that broken computer monitor, it might not be broken so bad that it can't go back to the manufacturer and get fixed and then resold, maybe at a cheaper price. What idols in your heart are being remanufactured? We're called here to identify our idol. And this is where the rubber meets the road. And if the rubber hasn't met the road already, uh, hopefully this is the part where the tires start to smoke and the rubber is melting, and you can smell it. I have some hard questions for you. What is the idol of your heart? And here's the way the question is. If God told you or asked you, walk away from X, would you recoil? What would it feel like? If God tells you, walk away, it might be just like this man, walk away from your financial security. Walk away from your home. Walk away from your life of comfort and ease and retirement. How does that make you feel? Give it up. Little children, I need you to give up all your friends and follow Christ. Give up your academic prestige Give up your athleticism. Give up your musical talent. Give up your health. Give up your professional reputation. Professors, PhDs, give up your career. When you hear those words, do you begin to feel disheartened because you have great love for X? Now, those are just things and reputations. What about people? I need you to give up your mother, your father. I need you to walk away from your children. My children, but I love my children. I do too. But we must love Christ more. Isn't this exactly what God does with Abraham? I need you to take your son, Isaac, the son of promise, and sacrifice him. And when Abraham obeys, James says, Then the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham believed and trusted in God much, much earlier than his sacrifice of Isaac or his willingness to do it. But James says, His faith is shown to be real when he's willing to walk away from that thing. What is the idol of your heart? Commentator named McLaren. I think he was a Scotsman. McLaren, sounds like it. Um, What is there rotting and festering down in the cellars of our hearts? Do we ever go down there Do we ever go down there with the candle of the Lord in our hands? If we do, all these I have kept, quote unquote, will falter into all these I've broken. I didn't have an idol just back then. I have remanufactured idols now that I need to bring and smash at the foot of the cross again and again again. And again, repenting and believing, repenting and believing. Through Jesus' answer of this man's question, he has a way of answering that has led the disciples to a better question. Jesus answers this and he says how hard it is. His disciples ask the better question. The rich young ruler asks, What must I do to inherit eternal life? And after Jesus has given this explanation, his disciples say, who then can be saved? That's whenever Jesus says, with man it is impossible, but with God it is possible. You see what Jesus is saying here, essentially, this is what I must do, Jesus. This is what I, Jesus, must do for you to inherit eternal life. Think about what he has told the man and who Jesus is. Jesus is the truly good Son of God, who as he takes human flesh in his humanity is no longer with in his humanity the treasures of heaven. He gives it up and then he is obedient to all of the commands to a T, even to the point of death, of giving himself, giving the idol as it were of one's own life for others. What Jesus is telling the man that he must do and how he responds to the man makes us realize who Christ is and what Christ has done. And it reminds us that we need him and that we have to trust in him, not just at some point in the past, but now. That I still have sin in me now that I need to repent and trust in him for the forgiveness of sins for, and ask that he would clean me up, and ask that as I commune with him, like that branch of the apple tree in the tree itself, that he would cause me to bear more fruit, help me to see my sin, help me to find the idols of my heart, and to bring them to the cross. So that's what I encourage you to do. Examine yourselves, What is the answer to the question, would you give up X for me? And we realize that, wow, I really am, even now, unable to earn eternal life, but Christ is able. And that's why he'll say just a little bit later on in this this chapter of Mark 10, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Our God, we are so thankful that you do reveal our hearts, that you do search us, that your word does probe us and expose the idols of our hearts, even if they're not the exact same as the rich young ruler. We recognize our need for forgiveness, our need for cleansing, and our need for your continual good work in us to will and work for your good pleasure. And so we ask that you would do that now. And we ask that as we look at a world that has been taught to walk backward, as it were, and who enjoys doing so, would you help us to look at them with love, with a desire that they would see their sin and come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. For we ask in his name, amen.